0: You're listening to the Scotiabank Market Points podcast. I'm your host, Greg White. Market Points is part of the Knowledge Capital series, a collection of audio, video, and written commentary from Scotiabank global banking and markets leaders designed to provide you with timely insights and analysis. In spite of an agreement led by the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia to cut global oil production, on Monday, April 20th, 2020, for the first time in history, U.S. oil prices dropped into negative territory. How deep will the oil crash go? And more importantly, how and when do we come back from this? On this episode of Market Points, Scotiabank commodity strategist Michael Lowen breaks down the market forces in this complex and critical industry. Hi, Michael. Thanks for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me, Greg.
0: Crazy day in the oil markets yesterday, which was Monday, April 20th. And I think before we jump right in um, to that, maybe you could provide some context for those that aren't involved in uh, commodities or oil on a a regular basis. When we talk about the oil price and oil prices tanking, um, what price are we actually talking about?
1: Right. Um, So the oil price that the headlines in the newspapers um, that you see around you is, is what's referred to as the prompt month Contract or futures market contract, and what that is—it's a fancy word for just saying that is the first month ahead of us for delivery. So as of today or or and yesterday, the prompt month contract would have been for May 2020. Um, That contract rolls off and is no longer the prompt month or the first month of the contract. Um, Tomorrow, the 22nd, June 20 becomes the new prompt month as the May one rolls off into the cash market. And so it, this is very important to understand in that the way that futures markets trade changes based upon how close they are to the cash market. So as a contract approaches expiration or, or, or approaches it, the cash market, it should start to reflect supply demand fundamentals for that specific delivery contract month. And in this specific case, the availability of storage, given that we, were, we are And will be severely oversupplied by the time we roll into May, the May cash market.
0: So in in terms of what happened on Monday, can you put that in a historical context? Has anything like that happened uh, before or in, in the modern era?
1: Not for benchmark crude oil prices. And when I say benchmark, I mean about the two oil prices that people typically talk about, which is West Texas Intermediate and Brent Markets. We have seen other oil markets trade into the negative territory. But this is the first time we've seen it for WTI and Brent. And importantly, we've also seen this happen in other commodity futures markets as well. So, so uh, natural gas part markets have traded negative on multiple occasions in the past. Uh, we've seen this in power, in agriculture. We've seen it in quite a few other commodity markets. It was pretty interesting to see the CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, come out. Just to clarify when things were getting a little bit hairy yesterday, that yes, indeed, WTI can trade negative, which was um, which was quite the event.
0: So we haven't seen this in WTI or Brent, and yet uh, here we are. Is this all driven by inventory issues?
1: It's not all due to inventory issues, right? Obviously, the inventory issues are the symptom of an underlying problem. And the underlying problem is the oversupply created by demand destruction from COVID-19, the response response by by various governments and economies to shut down, which has drastically reduced the demand for crude oil and refined products during this, this trying time. But in addition to that, we also had an OPEC price war at the same time in, in throughout March. That is now over. However, the lasting impact of both the supply and the demand impact has created such an oversupplied balance in the market that we are filling up storage Far too quickly, and so that storage is now, um, which was which was set up as a way of of uh, temporarily handling imbalances in the market on a short-term basis, now has to cope with much more of a long-term solution, which is just simply not set up to do so. And so this is it's more of about this, the storage situation is a symptom. The oversupply is the is the, the root cause, and how this symptom has manifested. Now is there? There's no more storage space available. Well, there there is forecasted to be no storage space available into May, and as a result, if you are naturally long crude oil as an EMP, or you have been long those contracts, then trying to unwind your position uh, creates a situation where nobody's willing to buy it from you, and that's essentially what happened there. Is um, it's not just storage is. The market got completely taken offside and wasn't set up for this scenario
0: from the beginning. So the price war ends, and then you have the United States cooperating with OPEC and Russia on this deal to restrict supply to support prices. Um, what happened to that? And uh, are the is the United States working with OPEC now?
1: Okay, so that's that's pre, it's, there's a very important distinction here. No private enterprise within the United States can collude to fixed pricing, and so no private enterprise um, can directly be a part of it. The only way that this would be allowed to happen is whether or not it came directly from the top from the government where the president himself um, would have to uh, would have to use the Defense Production Act, which he can use during wartime efforts to do- redirect Production of goods and resources around, in and around the United States, and so he could use that act to change how EMPs are producing and what they are producing during this COVID-19 wartime-like effort. So there is one remedy there. The U.S. doesn't import any Russian oil, anyways. They import um, roughly around one and a half million barrels per day of of OPEC supply as of today. It used to be substantially higher than that. Uh, it did that wouldn't balance the market. If you were going to completely tariff U.S. oil in the in this to the point where no barrels came into the market from OPEC, you'd still be oversupplied in the United States alone, just locally here. Um, so it, Trump didn't really. Um, I wouldn't say that the U.S. is is cooperating with OPEC Plus at all. I would say that Russia and Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC are creating a scenario. Where they're putting price, they're trying to target rent prices that are just enough to allow them to get by over the next little while, while also continuing to create pain within the U.S. shale sector. And by doing so, U.S. supply will start to fall as as a result of the economics of U.S. shale. It's just not profitable to drill, and those legacy well declines are just far too high at present.
0: Are are there any countries, uh, oil producing countries, operating profitably at, at these levels we're seeing right now?
1: There, there's potentially around two to three OPEC members that can withstand a forty five dollar Brent price market for say, you know, four to six years at a time. Anything below that, every single member is out of the money and unprofitable. And beyond that time horizon every single member would be unprofitable.
0: So with all these supply cuts, does that mean uh, production is cutting? What's the connection between cutting supply uh, that we're hearing about right now and uh, actual production levels?
1: This is quite the nuance, supply versus daily production. Right? So typically they they mean the same thing. That's in, that's in the, the typical sense that, whatever you're producing and you don't consume, you will sell into the market. And that would be your total supply, right? But in this scenario, your daily production can continue to to be stable. Hypothetically speaking, obviously they're probably going lower, but hypothetically say you have a country that produces 10 million barrels per day, okay? Um, But they can say that supply is substantially lower because what they are doing is as opposed to actually consuming whatever portion, say half of it internally, 5 million barrels, and exporting the other half, that other 5 million barrels, they don't export that at 5 million. They keep it internally, and they just fill into local storage tanks for, for later on. And so in that sense, your daily production is still 10 million, but your supply to the market is only five. And that is what's happening here with the OPEC supply cuts. And and that's a pretty important distinction to make, is that daily production, sure, it will be coming lower. There will be market-led declines. And some of these countries do have some flexibility to choke back wells and to reduce pressure in these wells to reduce their daily supply. But by and large, the size uh, size and the speed of the, the, the supply cuts that are being enforced on May 1st would dictate that this is more of a supply reduction, meaning that they will be storing those volumes locally and building up their own local inventories, as opposed to actually seeing those those daily production numbers come down. Uh,
0: and on the demand side of the equation, uh, have now, we now seen uh, demand shocks during the COVID crisis that are equivalent to uh, the financial crisis, or have we surpassed those?
1: So... I would say that on a given day, if you were to look at March 31st or April 15th in the in the peak of the COVID-19 demand impact, I would say that we have far surpassed the global financial crisis in terms of the acuity. But if you were to average this out over, say, a quarter, and we, we typically use quarters for global supply and balancing, um, when you average that out, that means that we're probably somewhere equivalent to possibly a little bit more than, than the global financial crisis. The global financial crisis in terms of on demand impact lasted for roughly six quarters, maybe eight, if you count the edges where they were basically neutral zero um, or growth was zero year over year. Um, if you compare that to COVID-19, there wasn't really a big demand impact in January. It started to get a little bit bigger in February and then it really ramped up throughout March during the lockdown of China in many parts of Asia. Then you fast forward to, to Q2. Now we're seeing that demand impact in, in North America, in Western Europe, but Asia is actually coming back in terms of demand right now. And so we've had this staggered impact around the world. Didn't all happen at the exact same time. And because you're splitting the, the peak demand impact Uh, between Q1 and Q2, when you look at it as just quarterly averages, it does soften that impact a bit in terms of your supply-demand balancing. We would expect that the demand impact actually starts to soften as you go into June this year as well.
0: What is the storage capacity in the United States and and, um, how does the transport infrastructure work into those storage calculations?
1: Okay, so there is Roughly 653 million barrels of storage capacity within the United States. 143 of that is located at refiners, and 510 of that is at tank farms. Okay? So if you were going to compare that to total crude oil inventories in the United States, as reported each week by the DOE, right now we are at 503.6 million barrels of crude oil in the United States as of April 21st. This means that if you're gonna use that number and compare it to our total working capacity of 653, that means that we're at 77% full. However, that is not a real number. Um, it, it doesn't reflect the fact that we have roughly 128, almost 129 million barrels of crude oil that is, that is stuck within tra- within pipelines, going from the wellhead to the storage facility or to the refinery. That 128 or 129 million barrels is included in that inventory number that the DOE reports. And so it doesn't actually reflect oil that is working against the storage capacity or is taking up spare capacity that could be used. And so you'd have to actually adjust that inventory number lower by that amount, which means that the total amount in refiners and tank firms is actually 300. 75 million barrels as of this week. If you compare that to your your total working capacity, that means that we are at 57-ish, maybe 58% full of total storage capacity in the United States. The problem is you can't really, the upper limit is not 100%. We won't ever get to 100%. We'll probably get to somewhere around 80%, which is where I think the danger zone is. And the reason for this is that we will never be able to actually, there are logistic constraints that will prevent us from actually reaching 100%. The first is that pipelines are used, uh, the way that they were built is they were built up and set up as just-in-time infrastructure to batch oil as it comes onto and comes off of pipelines and ahead of a refiner. Okay. And so it's essentially like a, a part of a, a manufacturing process and the pipeline is a conveyor belt but the, the, the oil tanks themselves are are an in inventory before the oil can hit that conveyor belt to go to the manufacturing process, which is the refining, which is the refiner okay And so because of this, you'll never want to get those to hundred um, percent And so that is one of the one of the main reasons why, that you won't get to 100%. And the second reason why is that you have different types of crude throughout North America itself. We have we have lots of light sweet, we also have heavy and we have heavy sour and we have medium grades, the various different grades of crude oil. And the problem is you can't mix them within the same storage tank, because if you do, then you sacrifice the premium grade um, and remove all the economic benefit of that grade from from those barrels so in reality your upper bound is probably around 80% and that means that even though we're at 57 or 58% full today we in reality only have 22 23% of this utilization rate left before before we are at this theoretical maximum capacity
0: are the futures markets uh giving you any signals to where the market thinks we're out of this thing like in terms of pricing and uh, and the term structure
1: Actually, yes. Um, the, the best thing for the market right now is to trade lower and to remain at these extremely low pricing in the very short term. I know it's painful for a lot of people to hear that, um, especially EMPs that make their money from selling oil. But in reality, we have too much supply in the market. And so, what needs to happen is short term pain for longer term gain. And we are seeing evidence of that creeping into the forward curve. So, essentially, Our front month, our prop month, as we mentioned earlier, has obviously gone down to zero and even to negative territory, and it's even pulling your second, which is June and and July months, and even August. It's pulling those contracts lower. On the flip side, when you look further out the forward curve, those contracts are actually lifting higher, and the reason for that is it's baking in the supply declines that this that the, the near-term environment is gonna create for EMPs. The more supply that comes off the market in the near term, the better chance that we do, we have of the market balancing itself by the end of this year, and we actually start to see storage declines globally at the end of this year and, and throughout all of next year. And so when you compare the forward curve um, today versus an entire month ago, You'll notice that the front end of the curve is substantially lower than it was a month ago, but the back end of the curve is actually substantially higher the further out you go as well. Now, we are actually 5 to $10 higher, um, I think, it, by the year 2026 than we were at this time one month earlier. So the, the, for, the market is smart. They understand the situation. The pain in terms of the that we're seeing today Will be for the benefit of the oil market longer term. So that's, that's kind of what I want to leave everybody here with is that um, this is a very temporary market situation. This summer 2020 will be the worst oil market of all time. But afterwards, we could be looking at one of the longest bull runs for the oil market in recorded history. Uh,
0: is there any Takeaway for the Canadian oil and gas industry, uh, any lessons they can learn from the experience we're having right now? Or is this situation just one of those outliers that you, you just can't plan for?
1: I kind of can learn a lot from this situation. And the big, the big key takeaway here is flexibility within our own infrastructure. We, we, need, to have, we need to essentially build out redundancy within our infrastructure. We need more pipelines to send our barrels to refined products markets not just in the United States, but globally. And that is, if we do have an issue in the United States in the future, we still have access to markets globally that we can, we can depend upon in the future. This is one of the reasons why the Trans Mountain Expansion Project is such an important project. Number two, we also need to build out more storage facilities. Uh, most of the storage facilities that we have in Alberta are set up as these batching, just in time batching projects um, to, to feed crude oil in batches onto pipelines before they go down to a refined product, refining market in the United States. We should have learned from various dislocations in the market where the differential has blown out in the past that we should have quite a bit of storage availability in, in Alberta. We haven't built that out yet. And because of the you know, just in time setup of these facilities, if we get even close to say seventy percent full, in Alberta, we are already in the danger zone here. And number three, this is more of a nice to have. Is I think that we export a lot of our value to other markets to 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 capture. And what I mean by that is we should have a larger refining sector of our own domestically within Canada, specifically in Alberta, in Ontario. I know that. Um, the east coast of Canada has quite a bit more. But it would be much better for us to refine our own refined products, gasoline distillates, and kerosene and whatnot, and sell it to our own Canadian consumers and capture that value, part of that, the, the value chain there, and to export this to the United States and then re-import back our refined products, allowing these refiners and these businesses to capture that part of the, capture that part of the value chain. And so this is a big, this is a big opportunity for Canada. There's a lot of value that is lost because we don't have enough flexibility in our own system and we don't have our own refining sector. I hope to see this change in the future. And I know that on terms on the pipeline side, we have three projects being built right now. The Enbridge Line 3 replacement project, Trans Mountain Expansion project, and Keystone XL. That should go a long way to fixing some of the inflexibility within the market, but we still need to build out storage facilities and a refining market locally in Miami.
0: That was Michael Lowen, Commodity Strategist at Scotiabank. You can find more thought-leading content from Scotiabank on our website at gbm.scotiabank.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter at ScotiabankGBM, as well as our LinkedIn showcase page under Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets. Please refer to our legal disclosures on our website.